part two of our series, Zero to Easter. Uh, the whole point of this is to take a person from zero faith, which is really the most popular, most fastest growing uh, religious view, in, at least in our continent, in North America, is no view. It's zero. So what does a person believe? Not sure, but not really into organized religion. Uh, tried that when I was a child or whatever, but, uh, you know, no thanks. And it's generally none. And so we, we have a pet term. We call, we call these folks nuns, uh, not in the religious sense, in the irreligious sense. And so what we're doing is, well, what, what would it take to go from zero belief to belief in the resurrection of Jesus? So that's a series, and we're doing four questions that are on your screen. These are the four messages that you will be quizzed on, and the person who wins gets the right answers the quickest is going to get a really nice prize. But I do that intentionally because uh, this, is, this is critical uh, spiritual formation and discipleship for a lifetime. Why do I say that? Uh, even within the churches today, in, especially in North America, there is a pronounced movement uh, these days of deconstruction and a move toward what is sometimes called progressive Christianity. And uh, deconstructionism is now a term that's used and taken very seriously, and this is the path of deconstruction. Uh, there's a great author by the name of um, Alyssa Childers, C-H-I-L-D, like child, E-R-S, Alyssa Childers, who does a great job on this, uh, speaking and writing. And she talks about this path of deconstructionism that leads to a kind of progressive Christianity. Here's what happens. The, the Bible is, is uh, doubted, and, and the, the, the belief in the Bible is the inspired word of God is, is removed. So what people do is they say, well, you know, I've grown up in the church, and people say that the Bible is the infallible, inherent, inspired, authoritative word of God, but it has all these contradictions and all these problems, and my faith is supposed to be based on it, but I see all of these problems, and I just can't hold to this idea of inspiration or infallibility anymore. It just seems ludicrous to me, and so they start doubting the inspiration of Scripture, and then uh, everything starts to crumble. So uh, hell and the, the concept of hell in, in the understanding of uh, eternal uh, punishment is most certainly doubted. The atonement of Jesus on the cross for our sins is viewed as almost like child abuse, like God the Father is abusing his, his child for what reason. Uh, the suffering in the world that people see is irreconcilable. The end times nonsense that people see. Jesus is coming back in the year 2000. Jesus is coming back in the Iraqi invasion. Jesus is coming back here. Jesus is coming back there and everywhere. And of course, it doesn't happen. And all these prophecies are made by all these people and they don't come true. And so the people get fed up with this, these kind of end times errors. And then they have a church experience where they see hypocritical behavior. They see... Uh, um, uh, behavior that contradicts the Christian faith. And so they say, you know what, I'm, uh, this is not for me anymore. And they have a kind of Christianity that's left, but it's, it's, there's, not much to, there's not much left of it. It's a real vestige 
of the historic Christian faith. The idea that Jesus rose from the dead is no longer necessary as a real truth and so on. So this is what's happening. And when you don't have foundational answers to these basic, basic questions, this is what happens. And I'm glad that there are young people in the room uh, because the path of deconstruction is one that is popular. Uh, teens, teenagers, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, you're the, that's the track that a lot of people in that age category are on. So uh, it, it should be taken very seriously. Parents who are in the room, grandparents are in the room. This is real, and this is what's happening in North America, certainly today. So we're going to answer the question, the second question in our, our little four-part series, uh, is there a theistic God? So last week we talked about, uh, does truth exist? It, does spiritual truth exist? And we had some fun with that. Uh, so I would, I would invite you, if you haven't seen it, uh, to watch it or to listen to it. We're also on several audio platforms, Spotify and so on. And uh, all the messages will be on there so you can review them and polish up so you can take a shot at that, uh, at that iPad, all right? Uh, but uh, is there a theistic God then? If spiritual truth exists, if it's possible that you could have spiritual truth, well, what about the theistic God? And when I say theistic, it's a fancy term. It means that there's a God who's personal, so he's not just a sort of blob out in somewhere, but he's personal. And he's powerful, and he's the creator. So there's one personal and powerful creator. This is theism. This is referred to as theism. So let's take a nun's approach today. And this is going to be a real stretch for you because you say, Pastor, like, I know all this already. Why would I even be in church today if I didn't believe that there was a God? Like, you're wasting your time. This is really frustrating. For some of you, this is going to be a stretch because you have to put yourself in the shoes of a nun. Not a nun in the religious sense, but a nun. And the nuns are all around you. You have family members who are nuns. You have friends who are nuns. You have children who are nuns. You have spouses, probably, who are nuns. Hopefully, one spouse it's a joke. Um, you, you, they're everywhere, and this worldview is everywhere. Folks, the whole reason why we, we planted this church was to reach the one who's far from God so that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. What's a passionate follower of Jesus do? They reach someone who's far from God. So uh, this is why we're here. This is, I mean, we didn't have to. This is why we're doing what we're doing. This is the reason for our existence. So for some of you, it's going to be a stretch. I want you to put yourself in the nun's shoes. I want you to put yourself in your neighbor's shoes. Who doesn't read the Bible? Who doesn't pray? Who doesn't go to church? Who doesn't know anything about the Bible? Maybe has an interest in spiritual things, but has a pile of questions, okay? So without referring to Jesus or the Bible, can we, can we build a case that theism is real and that the theistic God exists? You say, how do you do that without Jesus or the Bible? You're about to find out. Uh, I, I would say, regardless of what I'm about to teach you, uh, that really, in my view, the best evidence for 
the, the theistic God is actually Jesus. In my view, that he's, he's the ultimate proof uh, that, that this God is real. But for many people, they're not there yet. They, they don't even know if Jesus existed. They have trouble with even believing that Jesus was a real person, much less was crucified, much less rose from the dead. So even before you get to Jesus, you have to start somewhere. But I love the verse. I'll give you one verse of Scripture today, probably only one, from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, I think it is. Through him, being Jesus, you believe in God who raised him from the dead. Easter, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so your faith and your hope are in God. In Peter's view, it's through Jesus that you believe in God. Great. But what if people say, I'm not even there with Jesus yet? Can we build a case even without the Bible, even without Jesus? I'm going to give you three little pieces of evidence. None of them can be proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. You cannot prove that God exists beyond the shadow of a doubt. You cannot, I cannot do, even if I were to do a miracle in front of you, even if someone came into this, into this auditorium uh, in a wheelchair or blind and somebody prayed for them and they, and they were healed, even if you had a doctor confirm the healing on the stage, even if you did an x-ray on the stage, that's not, that's not 100% proof that God exists, that the God of the Bible exists. Some will still say, well, it could have been this, it could have been this, it could have been this. How do you know for sure? There's still, you cannot prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt. Again, even if I were to do some kind of miracle or somebody, a miracle would happen right in front of your eyes, there's still room for doubt. But what we're asking is, what's reasonable? What's a reasonable case for this? Not what can you what can you demonstrate beyond the shadow of a doubt, okay? So I'm going to give you three pieces here. Uh, try and be as, as brief as I can. These are not original to me. These arguments have been around for centuries. Uh, there are people who can articulate them a lot better than me. Uh, I would refer you to a few authors and a few books. Uh, great, great, relatively new book. That's an easy title to remember. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. A uh, great book by Frank Turek and uh, and Norm Geisler. Uh, that's very good. Alyssa Childers, who I just referred to, very good. Uh, anything by uh, J. Warner Wallace, the former cold case homicide detective, excellent. Uh, Mark Clark and the Problem of God, excellent. There's so much material about this. Anything by William Craig, uh, William Lane Craig, the Christian philosopher, outstanding. So none of this is original to me. I draw on half a dozen books uh, for this material, okay? First piece of evidence is what we call the cosmological argument. When I, we say argument, it doesn't mean you sit around arguing with people. It means this is your position, and maybe your position will have to be defended. It's not saying you've got to go and argue with people all the time, all right? This is the argument from cause. The cause of the universe, or sometimes the cosmos, everything that's, that's created, so to speak, everything, you know, the, the space, the stars, the earth, the everything, the universe, the galaxies, the everything. We sometimes use the word universe for this. We sometimes use the word cosmos for this. Everything. Beyond earth, everything, everything that we've seen so far, we call this the universe or the cosmos. What, where does this all come from? 
This is the argument from cause. Where does it come from? So right away, I'm going to give you two extremes, all right? Because I, I know some of you are going, oh, good night. You know, we're going to get into this. This is going to be a real boring thing about origins and creation and evolution. And oh, boy, give me some tea, you know. Oh, I can't wait for that movie in two weeks. You know, this is too heavy for me. Let me just, let me just break it down for you real, real simple and give you two, two opposite, almost completely opposite poles of the spectrum. Folks, there are dozens of views and dozens of theories about origins, and where all of this came from, dozens of them. It is a veritable ball of yarn. I mean, it is so complicated. I've spent years and years looking at this because I come from a, uh, a like a science background. And so uh, I'll give you two extremes just to, just to keep it real simple. On the left-hand side, you have one extreme, and it is certainly an extreme, and this is young earth creationism. So in young earth creationism, this is what you have, and this is... This is popular in churches for sure. Um, God created the universe. You'll never get an argument from a young earth creationist about that, okay? God created the universe. He created it out of nothing. He did it in six literal 24-hour days. That's key in the young earth creationist position. Therefore, the universe, get this, is less than 20,000 years old. The universe that's uh this is an extreme position okay but this is a view of young earth creationism and most of them wouldn't even say 20,000 years genesis chapter 1 genesis chapter 2 is a strict literal interpretation strict no room for any other position but a strict interpretation they reject what is called sometimes macroevolutionary process so the idea that all of life evolved from a common ancestor, they reject. They would accept, or this position would accept the idea that, there, that natural selection happens. Case in point, the virus that is now, uh, now we've got the BA2 subvariant, that's because of natural selection. So uh, even a young earth creationist would agree with natural selection, but they would not agree that everything evolved from a common ancestor, ultimately. They would reject that. And this would definitely be the minority view worldwide. In church, it might be popular. Try, try saying that you believe this even in the high school, even in a CJEP, even in, especially in a university campus. You will be mocked. You will be laughed at if you hold to this view. doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means this is one extreme, okay? And maybe some of you hold to, the, to this particular view. That, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just giving you the view. So that's one view on one side of the spectrum. That's one uh, considered at least extreme. When you go in the broad spectrum of science, this is considered a real extreme view. On the other end of the spectrum, on the right-hand side of your screen, is uh, the Big Bang and the, the Big Bang cosmology. You watch a TV show, Big Bang Theory? Anyway, I don't know why they call it that. I guess it's because you've got these kind of nerdy guys or whatever. But anyway, the, in the Big Bang, which is the most popular, uh, the most, um, I'll use the word, respected uh, view worldwide, uh, that doesn't mean it's right. I'm just giving you the view. In the Big Bang uh, cosmology, the universe exploded into existence somewhere around the region of 50, uh, 14 billion years ago. 
it seems to get longer and longer. <laughs> 40 years ago, it was like 10 billion, and now it's 14 billion. Well, it's a few billion among friends, right? So 14 billion years ago, you've got an explosion uh, from a point of singularity. Now, uh, long story short, we have pretty good evidence, and even, even young earth creationists will, will admit this, that the universe, the whole thing, is expanding. It's not, that, it's not that the galaxies are moving, it's just the whole universe is expanding. And there's nothing that we know of beyond it. So the whole thing is expanding. So the idea is, well, if the whole thing is expanding and you play the tape backwards, it all must have started from a single point, a point of singularity. And so uh, and we, can, we can see the, we can actually see the, the movement of it. We can watch redshift and all of these things. And there's several converging, very persuasive lines of evidence that show the expansion of the universe. And so this is where the theory comes from. Well, if it expanded, it must have started from somewhere, pow. So some uh, Big Bang cosmologists will say that there is a God who did this. Some will say there isn't. The hardline Big Bang cosmologists will say no, uh, and in fact, there was nothing before the Big Bang. Not even God existed before the Big Bang. There was nothing before the Big Bang. So the hardliners will say no God. Uh, some of them will take a, 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 at least a deist position, believing that a God exists. Maybe he's not personal like theism, but at least he exists or it exists and started it. it there's a wide variety of camps there. The earth in this view is four and a half billion years old. Genesis chapter one and two is poetry at best. Poetry at best. Evolutionary process is the main process by which we get everything. So everything ultimately evolved from a common ancestor, Darwin's theory and so on. This is the majority world uh, uh, view worldwide. You definitely will not be laughed at in a college campus uh, by adhering to the Big Bang Theory, but you will if you hold to a young earth creationist view. I'm not saying either view is right or wrong. I'm just telling you the views. Are you with me so far? Okay, good. You will be quizzed on this, by the way. Okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, you say, wow, those are really conflicting views. Like, oh boy, what am I supposed to do with these views? Uh, pastor, like, I don't want to be laughed at in my high school, college, university. What, uh, what am I going to do with it? Both of the views, ironically, do have at least one point of agreement. Both of them do. One point. At least one point. Both of these views, on opposite sides of the spectrum in many ways... Both of them believe that it had a beginning. Both of them. This is a staggering, staggering thing because it's a relatively recent phenomenon that, that it's accepted that the universe had a beginning. For centuries and centuries, people believed that the universe was eternal and that it had no beginning. For centuries. Hubble's, Hubble's discovery in whatever it was, 1929, really, really solidified the case for a beginning. And uh, it, it was very hard for people to accept. Even Einstein had issues with the universe having a beginning. So it's a relatively new idea that has been accepted really worldwide. There's very, very few people who, who doubt this now. Uh, again, can you prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt? Well, no, I suppose. But, I mean, when you've got, you've got a broad, broad spectrum 
uh, of people, again, even in the hardline young earth creationist camp, uh, they'll easily say the universe had a beginning. And then on the, you can have an atheist who will say that the universe had a beginning. So this is very much respected and agreed upon. Um, and that's amazing. Um, I, I'm trying to stay away from, from the Bible here. But uh, remember the first verse of the Bible? What's it say? Duh. It says there's a be, there was a beginning. It's fascinating. So here you have these theologians talking about this for years and years and years, and then science kind of catches up and says, yes, the universe had a beginning. Oh, boy. So they have, an, a, point, they have a point of agreement. Now, the cosmological argument can be summarized this way. It's one of the ways. That which begins to exist must have a cause. Something begins to exist. It has to have a cause. I would challenge you to think of anything that had a beginning that doesn't have a cause. You're, you're not going to get anything. You're going to come up dry on that one. So that which begins to exist must have a cause. So the universe then began to exist. It's a big, big deal that this is now finally being taken seriously. Again, relatively speaking, it's a new, relatively new idea that the universe had a beginning. So the universe began to exist, and if that is so, the universe must have a cause. This is the argument. We call this the cosmological argument. You say, well, what's that have to do with theism? Doesn't sound like anything to do with theism. Well, there's some implications behind this if it's true. If space and time and matter had a beginning, and by the way, just from a philosophical standpoint, time has to have had a beginning. If time had no beginning, you wouldn't be able to pass through it. If it. Just think about that for a moment. You wouldn't be able to pass through time if time had no beginning. You wouldn't be able to measure time. In fact, you would all be eternal be beings. If you existed and time was eternal, well, then you would be eternal. You can't have, you can't have time with no beginning. It has to have a beginning, just from a philosophical standpoint, right? It'll sink in <laughs> over time, <laughs> okay? Okay, you're listening. So, so space and time and matter had a beginning. Again, if you go by Big Bang cosmology, and I know for some of you that's like a curse word, Big Bang. Just hold on and just go with the view just for a second. If you go by that view, then space and time and matter had a beginning. And if it had a cause, according to the argument, if it had a cause, well, that would strongly imply that whoever or whatever caused space and time and matter can't be made of space, time, and matter because they caused it. So whoever or whatever caused it has to be spaceless, has to be timeless, has to be immaterial. Wow, I'm trying to stay away from the Bible. So Jesus said God is blank, and his worshipers must worship him in blank and truth. God is, no, John 4, God is spirit. Wow, that's interesting. That means he's immaterial. The Bible teaches that God is eternal. He's not subject to time. He's in time, out of time, 
on time, all the time, before time, after time, in your time, before your time, after your time. He's totally timeless. He doesn't occupy space. He doesn't need space. He can go in space, out of space. It doesn't matter to him. Wow. And this, this whatever or whoever has to be really, really, really powerful, like power beyond limits. We talk about nuclear power now because of the, the invasion of Ukraine, and we talk about thermonuclear power. The Big Bang, just if you go by the view, is more powerful than all of the nuclear arsenal on the planet. That's the kind of power that we're talking about in this hypothetical view. Again, just go by the view. This is the most commonly accepted world view on this subject. If it had a cause, everything that we're seeing here, whatever caused it has to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, and I would argue volitional, has to have a will to decide to create, to make the decision to create. This is an interesting argument for theism. All of these traits are present in a theistic view of God. He's spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, and he has a will. So the question on this argument is, which is more reasonable? Not what can you prove beyond the shadow of a doubt. Did it cause itself? Did the supposed Big Bang, if you go by Big Bang cosmology, did it cause itself? Uh, because, again, in hardline Big Bang view, there's nothing before. Zero, nothing. Now, uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, before he, he passed away, he postulated that the universe could create itself because of gravity. But even really brilliant people can say things sometimes that aren't so brilliant. Where would gravity have come from if it wasn't there before the Big Bang? To have gravity, you've got to have, you've got to have at least one object which will pull whatever other objects there are toward itself. That's what gravity is. So where would gravity be before the Big Bang if Hawking is right? And Hawking has been challenged on this. He's passed away now, but he's been challenged on this view that he put in his uh, latest book before he passed away. So did it cause itself? That's one view. Or did God cause it? And in, in this view, uh, God is eternally before the beginning of the universe. So no one created God. He's always there. He's the uncaused cause. He is the eternal one. And he created out of nothing. This is the, this is the, the view in the cosmological argument. And people can debate all they want with Big Bang or Young Earth creationism or everything in between and all of that. But in, that, in this view, uh, it is God clearly who is the cause of the universe. Do you see the argument? Okay, that's our argument number one. Number two is what we call the teleological argument. So this is the argument from not the cause of the universe, but the design. By the way, uh, Colossians chapter 1, I keep going back to Scripture, sorry, about Jesus, it says, He is before all things. Curious. By Him all things are created. Very curious. 
This would line up with the cosmological argument. You get that for free. So the argument from design is that not only do we see cause, but we see this ridiculous, highly complex design in the universe. It's highly, highly specified. It's highly coded. It's hardwired. It's I mean, you talk about things like DNA, and you're talking about ridiculous amounts of information that's very specific, that's coded, that does something very, very specific. It would be like a, like a volume of literature. In fact, several volumes of literature. We're talking about highly, highly specified design, uh, and, and the... the the picture that you see on your screen there is often used as an example of this. That is a diagram of a bacterial uh, uh, flagellar motor, a little tail on the back of a piece of bacteria. You've only got trillions of them swimming around in your bodies. And the little tail on the back of it is, is a very, very finely tuned machine. And those are the little pieces and parts of it in the diagram. It's, it's, it's exactly the same as an outboard rotary motor on a boat. Exactly the same. And the picture in the far right is an actual bacterial flagellar motor zoomed in with an electron microscope. You don't even need to look up to the sky to see a universe. All you need to do is look inside your body. And you will see a crazy universe. A crazy complex universe inside your own body that you you it just works for you and that's great but the more we learn about it the more we look at it the more we see this kind of crazy crazy complicated design it has all the earmarks of design and what we do is we copy the design that we see in nature Look at construction cranes and all this technology that we, we come up with. This is just a copy of what we see in nature. And we claim that what we see in nature arose without the need of a designer. And here we are designing what we see in nature. Do you see that? It's a bit ironic here, okay? I'm going to show you a video, and we'll play it for the, the folks at home. Uh, hopefully, it works for you. And I want to show you an example of this, a kind of a fun example. If you'll mute my mic while it's playing, that will, that will help, okay, for the people on the stream. Here we go. Oh, it worked before. Oh, too bad. All right, let me go down and um, just cut the camera for one second, and I'm going to go down and talk to your neighbor. Back to the stage here. Uh, what you see there, it'll probably work on the stream, actually. And uh, if you want, David, you can play it for the people at home on the stream. Uh, that is a, a picture of a robot, um, and the robot's name is Asimo. 
And uh, you can look up the robot if you want. You can go ahead and play it on the stream if you want, just for the people at home. And that is a $2.5 million robot from Honda. And it dances, it jumps, it can pour you a cup of juice. Uh, it's highly specified. It took 20 years to make. Magnificent little robot. Just Google it online and you can watch the videos. Asimo, A-S-I-M-O. And they've just retired Asimo after 20 years. So I don't know if you can buy one, but he's $2.5 million. Might be a little steep for the average person. Uh, but Asimo is remarkable because all it's doing is copying what a physical body can do. And it took 20 years to perfect. If you watch the videos online, you'll see it falling over when they first started to make it, and it was really big and ugly and everything. And then they finally got it down to this really cute-looking robot that does all these cool things, but it was designed. Why is it that when we look at something like that, we say, well, obviously it's designed, but when we look at something in the organic world, we say, no way. It had to have arisen without a designer. It had to. There can't be a God. There can't be an intelligent designer. There can't be. There just can't be. Why is it that for one thing, we say there must be, and as soon as we jump to the organic world, we say there can't be? I don't know if we're doing this on good grounds. Uh, Fred Hoyle, who's often quoted, passed away uh, now, but he was an astronomer, famous astronomer, and also professing atheist. And he looked at what's called the anthropic principle, and this is the idea that the universe is finely tuned, and that there are like a hundred plus different aspects of this, and chemical content, uh, um, um, uh, what do you call them? In the chemical world, the biological world, the physical world, there are constants that have to be set to that specific value. If you change one of those constants, even just a little bit, you have no life in the universe. And he observed, as have many others, that it's as if the universe has been finely tuned, like all these dials on a radio, you know, a hundred plus dials on a radio have been tweaked just so. So that you could have life in the universe. Amazing. And Fred Hoyle says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming to put this conclusion almost beyond question. So in his view, someone or something played around with the constants of the universe in several areas just so, so that you could have life. And he was an atheist. In his view, life came to earth on the back of an asteroid. You know, it came from another world, what we call panspermia, and landed on the earth and things started reproducing and here we are. He wasn't, he wasn't a theist, he was an atheist. And yet he's saying this because he observes all of these things and he says, it's like all these things have been set intentionally so that you could have life in the universe. And in particular, because we don't see it anywhere else, Yet, life on earth. You say, Pastor, you believe in life in other planets? I don't know. 
<laughs> but uh, we certainly see reproducing life on earth, don't we? And so uh, Hoyle and others have said, wow, this is, the chances of this just happening are so ridiculous that it's not even worth talking about. You're talking about like 81,000 zeros after a one that this could just happen in a supposed Big Bang condition that all these constants would be set to this value so that you could have reproducible life. They look and they say it's impossible. There has to be someone who's tinkered around with this. The, the anthropic principle within the teleological argument, I know those are fine-sounding terms, but uh, that's the terms that are used. That's actually very, very respected or the most respected part of the argument for theism is this fine-tuning business. And uh, some of the atheists will admit that, and they will say that that one gives us trouble. They think that they can refute it, but they don't really like it so much because it does give them some trouble, okay? So this is the teleological argument. So in the cosmology, you have an argument from cause. In the uh, teleological argument, you have an argument from design. Do you see that so far? Okay, last piece of the puzzle. We're, we're keeping good time here. And this is a moral argument, a moral argument for the existence of the theistic God. And that is that there, there seems to be in humans around the world, wherever you go, there seems to be a universal sense of right and wrong, of just and unjust. I mean, all you have to do is talk to somebody about the, the injustices of the world. You're going to have a whole, you, you, that person is going to have no trouble telling you what they think is wrong with the world. What they think is wrong, what they think, the government's wrong, the, the, the church is wrong, the, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this should stop. People have a strong sense of right and wrong. And have any of you ever been stolen from? You ever been robbed? When you were robbed, how did it feel? It's wrong. You have this sense of violation. You have this sense of you don't say, oh, that doesn't matter. We, uh, it doesn't matter. Who cares? I've been robbed. So, No, you have, there's something on the inside that, that rises up and you say, that's wrong. Why is it that you go anywhere in the world and you rob someone? They're not going to say, good, thank you for robbing me. Really appreciate that. Why is that? Why is it that if you go and you commit murder, you, it's not going to be accepted. It's not going to be, well, that's right, that's okay, that's all okay. No, there's something within us that we have this sense of right and wrong, and the argument is that this implies that whatever or whoever, in this case it would be whoever because it would mean this whoever has a moral sense that's been implanted in us, and hardwired in us. You say, well, I don't really believe you. Let me show you a picture. <laughs> Why are you laughing? You shouldn't care. Why do you care? Why did, why did the internet explode over this incident? Why? Because you've got people who watched it who are saying, get this clown and lock him up. 
And then you've got other people saying, no way. He defended his wife. His wife was insulted, and he was right. The comedian deserved it. Right or wrong, the police were called. I mean, this thing is taken over the Internet. There's a war going on, and you turn on the news, and you're watching this picture. We're fascinated by this. Why? Just an example, because it has to do with right or wrong. And we all have an opinion, and we all seem to care about it. And, I mean, this is is getting bigger and bigger. I watched a video, over 6 million views, half an hour long video of an analyst, a body language analyst, who is analyzing each character in this crazy event, you know, from Jada Smith to Will Smith to Chris Rock, analyzing the body language of each individual. I was riveted by this. And this, this guy, six plus million views, able to tell you whether or not he thought it was staged or not staged. It was fascinating to watch because he, everything that he's talking about has to do with this moral sense of right and wrong and how people react to different things that they perceive as right or wrong. Why is it that we have this within us. Some say, well, it just evolved like everything else did. Your sense of morality just evolved. It's just a collection of molecules and chemicals. That's all it is. And the reason why we have it is because it propagates our species. It allows us to pass our genes on to the next generation. There's no moral God. There's no theism. This is just, all this moral stuff has just been evolved. This is the worldview of naturalism. That's all there is. It's all chemicals. It's all molecules. That's all there is. That's naturalism. If you remember the C.S. Lewis movie that we, that we played here, C.S. Lewis had trouble with this naturalism because he said, well, if naturalism is true, then how do you know naturalism is true? Because your idea of naturalism is just a bunch of chemicals. Your very concept of naturalism is just a bunch of chemicals anyway, so how can you really believe it is true? In fact, how can there even be truth if naturalism is true, is what C.S. Lewis had a problem with. It's an interesting question. The logical conclusion of evolution and naturalism is quite repulsive to us. It really, really bothers us. You know, you, you have examples of people who, who do things that will make them give up their DNA. You have, if, if life is all about us just, just, just surviving and passing our DNA to the next generation, why are we sacrificing ourselves for people? Why do we, why do we commit acts of heroism to sacrifice ourselves for other people who we don't even know? That's very counter-naturalism. We shouldn't care. We should only care about the preservation and the survival of ourselves so that we can pass our genes on to the next generation. Well, why do we have this sense of love for other people? It, it very much does not help the problem. You say, well, you, it helps you pass your genes on, though. 
Well, in some ways, yes, but in other ways, we do things because of love that are counter the idea of naturalism. They're counter survival of the fittest. They put us at risk where we could lose our very lives for somebody else. That's very counter. Uh, Darwin's work, uh, uh, The Origin of Species, has another title. It's a title that we don't use today, but it did have another title. And this, the, the other title of it was The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That's repulsive to us. Why? This is the logical outcome of naturalism. This is the logical conclusion of, of evolutionary thought is that there's a struggle for life and whatever is, is favored will survive. This is what Darwin postulated. Folks, read The Origin of Species. You're going to find some real racist stuff in there. You're going to find some repulsive things in there. But that was the conclusion that he came to because it is the logical conclusion of a naturalistic worldview, a view without a personal God. Why do we find this repulsive? We shouldn't. If it's true, then we should, it shouldn't bother us. We should not be bothered the way that we are bothered, and yet we are. Why? And the argument is, because there is a God who hardwired this moral sense within us, and we can't escape it. Wherever we are, we have it, and we can't escape it. So these are the three pieces of the puzzle, the cosmological argument, teleological argument, and the moral argument. Uh, let, me, let me encourage you, uh, and the musicians, you can come as we're going to finish up the service here. Let me encourage you. Uh, today. You know, those of you who are theists in the room, you believe in a personal uh, creator God. You, you, you claim to have a relationship with this God. You know, when you, when you call out to, to God, th this God, when, when you call out to him, you're calling out to the one who created it all out of nothing. My friends, if he created it all out of nothing, do you think maybe he's capable of taking care of you? Do you think maybe he's able to provide for you if he created it all out of nothing? Say it's impossible to create out of nothing. Yes, it is. If that's what God did, and, we're, and it's a supernatural thing, a miraculous thing, is he not able to take care of you? Just look at your own physical body without even looking up to the heavens. The psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He observes as he looks at his own physical body. It makes him afraid and it makes him, uh, it, it creates a sense of wonder. And that's before electron microscopes could look inside of it. Folks, if that's the God who is, can he not take care of you? Can he not walk with you through your deepest, darkest moments if he designed the very hands that you use every day and the very body that you, that you have? 
You say, well, it's, it's broken and it's breaking. Yeah, but you, you still have it, don't you? You still have life and you still have breath. If God did that, can He not take care of you? If you have that sense of moral justice and that outcry for justice and that sense of right and wrong, don't you think that God has it even more than you? Don't you think that God is bothered by what he sees? Don't you think he wants to change it? Well, the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus in Easter is that one day he will. This is theism. This is the argument for the God that we see here. So I would challenge you, if you believe in this God, to hold fast to Him and to hold His hand through the struggles of life that you are facing. And I would challenge you to share Him with others and to share your experience with Him with others. Because it could very well be that this God who we're talking about wants those people to love him just like you do father i pray for each person who's here today those who are in the room uh, those who are watching online those who are going to watch later and listen later uh, lord i pray that uh, above all things you would grow our faith in this in this in this church community you would grow our faith and you would help us lord to keep on reaching for you and seeking you. And Lord, to build an authentic relationship with you. We can, we can come up with all of the, the arguments and all of the discussions and, and build a case. But God, at the end of it, we need to have a genuine walk with our Creator. So I pray that you would build this desire within uh, those of us who are believers who are watching and listening today but even in those who are not that you would push us God to continue to ask those questions to continue to seek you and to reach for you for you promise that you are not far from each one of us we pray in Jesus name amen God bless you today. Thank you so much for, for tuning in. You can review the material. It will be online. We are two more messages away from the end of it. And uh, so you want to buy tickets for the kids, you can do that for the movie that will be on the 15th. Uh, the giving table is open over there. Remember to pick up your kids on your way out. Hope to see some of you on Wednesday or Thursday online. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.